welcome to All in a Day's Sex Work. I'm your host, Blair Hopkins. We're back! I took an extended season break after December 17th, partly because that time of year is just really draining, partly because I didn't want to do literally fucking anything until after the inauguration, and partly also because I got to leave Washington State for the first time since before the pandemic started to come down to Florida and help Swap Behind Bars prep for their second annual Super Bowl bailout event. Sex trafficking hysteria and its accompanying law enforcement emphasis reaches a zenith around major sporting events. This year, the Super Bowl is in Tampa, and it's coming up this weekend, actually. The area is already awash in billboards and other materials from well-meaning anti-trafficking organizations. Also, stings are up like nobody's business. And in addition to targeting adult consensual sex workers as either dangerous criminals or hapless victims, there's a special emphasis this year on customers. On January 1st, a new law went into effect that mandates men arrested for soliciting prostitution be placed on the newly established Soliciting for Prostitution public database. Those arrested face five years or more on this registry, which, for a working stiff, just trying to pay a working girl, can be life-wrecking. An arrest on its own can cost a person their freedom, their family, and their livelihood. The added stigma of being on, essentially, a specialized sex offender registry compounds that trauma and upheaval. Earlier this month, over 70 people were arrested in a slew of stings. We anticipate many more arrests between now and the end of next weekend. With that in mind, Swap Behind Bars plans to file a class action lawsuit to challenge the registry's constitutionality, so if you or anyone you know has been affected by this law, please get in touch via the Community Support Helpline at 877-776-2004. That's 877-776-2004. You can also go to swapbehindbars.org and make use of the chat function. So, yeah, lots going on this week. I want to tell you also what this Super Bowl bailout event is actually all about. I'll just read the press release, since I already wrote it anyway. Tampa, Florida. Swap Behind Bars in partnership with Woodhole Freedom Foundation, Metro Inclusive Health, Lips Tampa, and Big John's Bail Bonds has set up a bail and legal assistance fund for sex workers detained by anti-trafficking stings around this year's big game. Already, 71 people have been arrested. Widely reported as anti-trafficking initiatives, these arrests ruin lives, hurting victims and consensual sex workers alike. This week, a small army of activists and community organizers will monitor areas where arrests trend upward in anticipation of the coming week's sporting events. Swap Behind Bars' Alex Andrews will direct a network of allies to bail out those arrested on prostitution charges. While many will be released on their own recognizance, repeat offenders can face up to one year in prison in the state of Florida. Sex worker advocates will show up for the first appearance hearing to bond out those not granted ROR. Additional volunteers will meet people once they are released from jail to connect them with services. Available services and referrals include bail and court fine assistance, legal fee assistance and access to pre-vetted legal representation, housing, SNAP and other public assistance application guidance, and HIV and hepatitis C testing courtesy of Metro Inclusive Health. The consequences of criminalization are devastating, says Andrews. 
the public has been led to believe that increased resources for law enforcement efforts will go to saving victims of sexual exploitation, when in fact arrests only hurt those they claim to help. Now, we are actively fundraising for this. Uh, for more information on how you can support this nationwide community of sex workers, activists, and organizers, visit swapbehindbars.org donate. This is going to be a robust year here at ADSW. I have a ton of cool stuff in the works, including, but not limited to, the addition of a second episode per week focused on sex work-related headlines, for which I will have a revolving cast of very exciting co-hosts. There's more merch coming down the pipeline, I'm revamping the website with some upgrades that I can't wait to share with you all, and we've got some killer interviews. Speaking of, this week I'm joined by Vanity Fair reporter Mae Young. May has an impressive, award-draped body of work that is soon to include a book about sex work. She recently published a deep dive on Atoy, the pioneering prostitute of Gold Rush, California. She came into my life due to her incredible long-form reporting on the Robert Kraft case. For the uninitiated, Robert Kraft is a billionaire, who also happens to be an owner of the New England Patriots. In February of 2019, he was arrested for patronizing a massage parlor in Jupiter, Florida. All of the women who worked at the parlor were subsequently arrested, and the bust was billed very inappropriately as a major sex trafficking ring bust. Kraft, though humiliated, faced no legal consequences. The case against him was dismissed in August of last year. The way this saga unfolds will have your jaw on the floor. The incompetence of local law enforcement, the racism, the commodification of justice, it's a really wild ride. I'm not going to say anything else about it, though it does come up in our conversation. I suggest you read May's piece, linked in the show notes. Anyway, I just adore May. The first time we met, it was at a coffee shop in Brooklyn in, I want to say, late 2019, I went in to talk about the sex worker rights movement. She put in a good two to three hours of work at that table laughing at my jokes, and by the time I left, I was pretty sure I'd given up state secrets. She's super charming, thoughtful, and just an all-around delight to talk with. Our conversation in this episode centers around her evolution as a writer, how she came to be on the sex work beat, and how her own experiences many of which are relevant to her identity as a woman of Korean descent, have shaped her conception of journalistic ethics and tone in covering sensitive topics. What have you been up to? Uh, what have I been up to? I am knee-deep in, like, reading reading as you can mm -hmm. see and exactly as you say what I realized is that I mean I guess you know it doesn't take too long for anyone to figure this out but like sex work is at the intersection of so many issues that like any reasonable thinking person should care about and so then you realize that sex workers rights is like trans rights and it's also like tied to gentrification issues in urban cities which is also tied to like immigration which is also tied to anti-poverty work you know like it just the list is unending like sex sexuality gender inequality and so then I I'm sort of I'm in a bit of a rabbit hole of 
indulging in all these like, oh, actually, before I do anything, what I really need to do is like read like Marx, all of Marx. And that, you know, like, it's just kind of, it's not good actually, but I'm sort of, it's still living in this like delusional world of like, oh yeah, I'm just going to like do some gentle reading before I start on my own own work so yeah. down the rabbit hole we go yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then like last week I was taught the reason why I called Alex is because I realized that maybe something I should look into is like December 17 stuff like people who mm -hmm. actually you know like we we always say like stick my kills but like what happened in instances where it literally killed somebody and so then I I sort of went into that rabbit hole a little bit and you know like I'm following Kiki as well as like other bunch of other people so it just there's a lot there's a lot going on there's a lot awesome yeah. well for podcast purposes um tell me a little bit about your background and how you came into covering uh sex work and sex work adjacent topics I'm a reporter and I am uh a writer as well and the reason the the way I got into doing sex work research is really I mean you you can go back so many ways but I think one pivotal thing that happened in my life was that I was living in Afghanistan at, right after school and I was working as a freelance reporter there and I'm I'm of East Asian descent my parents are Korean I look it it and when I was living in Afghanistan, I would often be stopped by the Afghan police and they would want to know, you know, where your paperwork. And it was often because they thought that I was a prostitute because the only other um, women of East Asian descent in Afghanistan at the time were people working at the local um, Chinese restaurant, which also doubled as a brothel. And I remember being so incensed every time this happened. It was a regular enough occurrence that I knew to like have paper on me. And every time it happened, it would just like I'd fly into a rage. And then years later, after I moved to New York, I, I sort of was like, you know, revisiting that memory and thinking, well, why was I so upset to be mistaken as a prostitute? And obviously that reveals a lot of my own prejudices and like chorophobia that is so embedded in like anyone who like lives in this world and so then like that was happening around the same time where obviously you know I was I had a lot of friends who were sex workers I myself was you know in a like lap dance lounge and I um there was a vice raid and I didn't get arrested but we were detained briefly and I remember it is quite shocking to learn about uh, vice cops while you are in the middle of a vice raid, as I learned. And I remember thinking, well, Howard, I, first of all, I can't believe they're called, they exist. Second of all, I can't believe that they're called vice cops. Third of all, how are they different from like the morality police in Iran that we think are so terrible? There isn't really that much of a difference. And and yeah, that was really the beginning. And I didn't really know what to do with these like discoveries and experiences that I were having. But I did, I did have some vague sense that I wanted to report on sex work. And so then so I had this idea for like a couple of years. And then by around the same time, I had started writing for Vanity Fair magazine. And um, when we heard the news about Robert Kraft walking into like a massage parlor and getting arrested, 
I look, you know, I regarded that with interest and I remember reading the reports coming out and I'm sure you remember this too, but they were talking about like a global sex trafficking ring and, you know, like millions of dollars, like, you know, coming in out of Florida and to China and just something about that didn't sit right with me. There just was no way that this was possible. I think it's just like the bullshit detector went off and I just thought this doesn't make any sense. And so then I began looking into it further and obviously, you know, surprise, there is no global sex trafficking ring. It's just a bunch of grandmas like hustling and trying to make money for themselves and their like extended families. And I was really struck by the fact that so many things. One thing was that I was just very, very struck by like law enforcement's ability to buy into the myth of a global sex trafficking ring over the reality that sometimes people need money so they'll do what is available to make money like they couldn't they they couldn't get get their like heads around the fact that um a lot of people working in massage parlors that was a function of like maybe poverty or inequality or like being locked out of traditional labor markets versus any sense of yeah, some like criminal syndicate. That was really surprising. And then I think the other thing that was quite surprising was that, and this is also obviously reveals my own naivete, but anti-prostitution laws effectively function as anti-immigration laws because a lot of people who go into sex work are marginalized, you know, because they're usually, first of all, they're usually women or, you know, non-binary people and they're like people of color and maybe trans people, and also, again, like people who are undocumented who can't get jobs elsewhere. And that relationship between, you know, a legislation being anti-prostitution and anti-immigration, as I looked into it, I realized that it really goes back to like the beginning of the founding of our, you know, the founding of America and how intrinsically tied those two ideas are. And anyways, I mean, it's just, I just can't, I can go on for a very long time, but, I just felt like every discovery was both a revelation and a confirmation of suspicions that I held. Yeah, and as a reporter, it's it's funny, like you are having life experiences, but there's always a part of you that's like the tiniest bit dissociated and, and kind of filing that away. So you're sitting in this lap dance lounge and they get raided. And like you said, you're like, I'm learning about this as it's happening. <laughs> And it sounds like you just had a lot of experiences where the narrative began to naturally construct itself. Yeah, completely. And, and I mean, the most recent example is that I was in Texas on a reporting trip unrelated to the book project. And it's a long thing, but effectively the thing that you don't know about me, Blair, is that I am a terrible driver, but an enthusiastic one. And so I'm just driving the middle of the night in this like single lane highway, in the in central texas nobody knows where i'm at and as i'm driving i guess i like i don't i think i sped but like not by not that much and a, a point is i got pulled and the police officer was this like young man who later i learned was like probably on probation himself he was very nervous and um he uh so to reprimand me he held a gun to my head and got me at, yeah I just was like wow this is of course this happens in America and in Texas but anyway so he he pull, pulls a gun and I remember just thinking like oh like I've seen enough like police like shooting videos to know like 
the you know when you go to whatever like you know um unbuckle your seatbelt is like when you get shot and so I'm like putting on my most middle class accent and I'm narrating everything I'm doing it's like stepping out of the vehicle he puts me on the ground and handcuffs me and I'm just like I can't believe that it escalated so quickly and in that moment I'm on the ground like wearing like athleisure clearly not a criminal. I don't, I mean, if you were to profile me, I would probably not come across as one. And nevertheless, I'm on the ground. Well, yeah, in the context, you're like, I mean, you're tiny. You know, you're, you're very yeah. petite. Yeah. Yeah. And again, middle class accent. And the guy is like, you know, whatever, like asks my driver's license, blah, blah, blah. Eventually lets me go. And um, because I am here on a work visa, I'm a Canadian, I. So then I was a little nervous about that, but anyways, like I end up calling the local court the next day to say, okay, I have this ticket, how do I pay? It's fine. And what effectively ended up happening was that um, I didn't stop right away because I didn't realize it was, I thought it was like an ambulance or something. So then I pulled over and then when it still didn't go past me, I drove a little bit further, found a, like a little shoulder, gravel shoulder and pulled over. So anyways, that effectively amounted to failure to uh, yield right away to like a moving vehicle or something or emergency vehicle, pardon me. So I ended up incurring two tickets. So I called the court and I, you know, asked, I've never had a ticket before, how does one pay? And the woman goes, this is how you pay. And she tells me it's like, I don't know, something ridiculous, like $800 or something. And I'm like, that's bananas, but fine. Um, and then as I'm hanging up, I ask her, oh, by the way, um, is this like a mystery, you know, what it, like, is this an infraction? Like, what is this? And she, I think she told me that this, this in Texas counts as like a class B misdemeanor. So then I immediately call my immigration attorney and I have to explain everything. And I asked her like, is this going to be an issue for my work visa, which we are currently in the process of applying. And she goes, oh fuck, I don't know. Let me get back to you. She goes away and then eventually she comes back and she explains that she spoke with her colleague and she tells me that as long as this is not a crime of moral turpitude, you are fine. So then I'm like, well, what is a crime of moral turpitude? I look up crime of moral turpitude. Crime of moral turpitudes are essentially crimes of poverty. If you, if you jump a turnstile that constitutes crime of moral turpitude. And as you may know, in New York, there's lots of conversations about walking while trans, the fact that a lot of like, loitering offenses. I mean, what constitutes loitering really depends on, you know, what perceived gender are you, what class are you, what neighborhood, and what race are you? And which is effectively the same as crimes of moral turpitude. Yeah, it's it's, it's certainly turpitudinous in this country to be poor, so. Completely, completely. And so, I don't know, I think once you realize that sex work is at the intersection of so many things, it's difficult to unsee that, I think. So, First of all, that's incredibly harrowing, and it's it's really interesting that you know you <laughs> that story might be touted as like a successful law enforcement interaction because you didn't die and you <laughs> just got a tick and you ended up with just like a shitty ticket. But like, I mean, and he and he didn't break any protocol. It sounds like so. I mean, here you are going like. Okay, but now I'm a little bit traumatized because that's actually just a super scary experience to have. But I guess it's okay because I just got a ticket. <laughs> and I think that there's a really pervasive attitude. I don't know where this comes from exactly, but that like 
um, people take for granted that any interaction with law enforcement can be really traumatic regardless of the outcome. So like spending one night in jail can be incredibly disruptive to somebody's life. You know, having one really negative interaction with law enforcement can impact an entire community's, you know, ongoing interaction with law enforcement. And, you know, as, as far as sex work goes, you know, one of the things that we've been working on um, at Swap Behind Bars is, you know, as we try harder and harder to get a seat at the table with some of these anti-trafficking organizations, is they really push for us to um, kind of let law enforcement into our, um, you know, efforts. And we're kind of like, yeah, but we don't trust you. We can't trust you. We have to be able to, we want to trust you. We want to get people help that they need, but we, we can't. Um, and I, I think too, that people don't want to think that like a tiny girl with a Midwestern accent could be, you know, handcuffed on the ground for failure to pull over in time. But like, you know, on the other end of that interaction is like a scared 22 year old with a gun. Yeah, and no body cam, no one knows I'm on the road. I mean, it really reminded me yet again, how easy it is to become a criminal in America and how wrong it is that a lot of people in the criminal justice world hold on to this belief, and you've heard this too, that you know, arrest is important because that's how we connect people with services. I mean, surely there's a better way than traumatizing people and coercing them into participating in like whatever system programs that they want them to participate in. I mean, it's, a, it's deeply flawed what we do, the systems we've created. Um, let's talk about immigration. So, uh, you know, you went through this with, with your own law enforcement but also like this is something you've done a deep dive into with the Robert Kraft case, um, specifically um, Asian immigrants, when there are prostitution arrests that they can impact people's ability to stay in the country. And th there's a deep irony in the fact that these are these stings and these arrests are under the pretext of helping and rescuing people. Yes. Um, and actually, as an aside to that, something that I learned in my research is obviously there were these questions of, well, why is it that so many massage parlors are Asian owned? Because if you go to Asia, it's not like there are massage parlors in like every other street corner. It's really like a phenomenon that's specific to North America. And the, the little research that I've begun doing, what I've learned is that at least in the, I'm Korean, in the Korean community, a lot of Korean women initially came because uh, when American GIs are stationed in Korea, they would meet like our girls or their cold hostess girls, like basically like, you know, women working in, you know, whatever bars or restaurants. And they would either get into like a legitimate marriage with these like American soldiers or they would participate in some sort of a sham marriage that would allow them to immigrate to America. And then they would um, settle down in various, you know, near military bases and whatever, Fort Worth or Fort Hood or, you know, Fort Bliss or whatever. And they would, yeah, they would arrive and, you know, you, you get there, you don't have much. What's an easy thing to do, obviously, is open up a massage parlor. And I think another separately, something that we since learned about immigration in general is that people obviously 
go where they know other people. And so then this, um, uh, this movement of people, this pattern is established and then it becomes easier. And so when you speak during their craft story, when I was speaking with um, massage parlor workers, no one will just buy a ticket to America knowing nobody that's quite rare. It's usually that, you know, even if it's some incredibly tenuous connection, like a fourth cousin's neighbor, his girlfriend or something, there is some connection. And then you end up uh, doing the thing that other people have normalized doing. So it doesn't seem so out of the ordinary that you would participate. And as you say, the, the immigration implications is that it really is that on paper, prostitution laws are, you know, there's no, it's, it's uh, meant to be gender blind. It doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman, um, you're meant to be prosecuted equally, but the application of those laws is such that obviously it's women, the, the, the sex workers who are routinely exposed to criminalization arrest who end up, you know, becoming worse off. And so specific, I mean, the, the reason why the craft story I think was so illuminating was because it was very clear that a incredibly rich billionaire white man would get away. His case was eventually dropped, as you know, recently. And then the fate of some of these women, I mean, um, I don't know how much I can say only because I, I sort of forget how much of this is public and how much isn't. But I mean, the, the, the thing that was reported in my article, at least, is that some of these women ended up in ICE custody and they await deportation. And so that's a very dramatic discrepancy in um, uh, two people. And, and, and yet, you know, the, the crime they ostensibly committed is exactly the same crime. The women get painted as victims of trafficking or they get painted as the traffickers. And I guess it really just, you know, it's, it depends on what your definition of trafficking is, right? I mean, we have a pretty, legally, we have such an incredibly broad definition. Um, you know, if you move here, you know, at the behest or with the help of your, you know, mom's second cousin, and then it just so happens that the easiest job for you to get is one in a massage parlor, did your mom's second cousin traffic you? And I think the only answer to that is, well, do you feel trafficked? Do you feel exploited? And nobody's asking people that. Absolutely. It's kind of amazing how a lot of the, yeah, institutional responses that we have have been like institutionalized in the absence of actual input from people that are meant to be helping. That's kind of incredible. And also too, I think the criminal justice system as it's laid out right now, there's just no room for ambiguity. You're, you know, you are a victim or a villain and nothing in between. And I don't think there's any room for like more nuanced understandings of agency and complicity. How does that compare and contrast to other countries that you've lived in? Ooh, great question. Mm, honestly, I don't know if there's any other country that does sex and sex work well I mean obviously there's the we always look to like New, New Zealand as like the model that maybe if um, I mean but then again like I mean it feels like such a fanciful notion that America would ever entertain the New Zealand model because I feel like sex work is so intrinsically tied to sex here which is so weighed down by 
like issues of morality that it is like impossible for people to think straight and look at facts and decide that way versus going with what they think should be. And I think this is probably very, um, I'm sure people have expounded on this off, you know, enough times on your podcast, but I just, I just still can't get over the fact that this is how we've decided to arrange our society and like distribute resources and power. And I think specifically what strikes me as quite curious is that it's very clear that what should happen is that we should, instead of like punishing women for being poor or wanting to survive, like maybe giving people better options at housing or employment or like healthcare or, you know, like all the other different reasons why people might participate in sex work. I mean, like we should just try to address that versus punishing people for wanting to like, I don't know, make money to buy milk for their daughter because they're a single mom, which is honestly usually the case. I think people, when, when they, when like the popular conception of a sex worker is seldom someone who is, yeah, like a single mom or in need. And, and, and that I, I love that thing that people say often about how, um, maybe it was even Alex who told me this at first, but, you know, statistically speaking, um, there are apparently more sex workers in America than there are coal miners, right? So then, like, that means that someone you know is a sex worker, statistically speaking, and people don't realize that. Because we don't want to talk about sex. It's, like, too embarrassing or something. I don't know. It's almost like capitalism was the villain all along. Oh, I mean, yes, we know that to be true. (laughs) There's been... I think two ways culturally that we've gone with this narrative, um, I think that the left, well, I would be naturally inclined to say the left because I'm a leftist, but um, there's there's a lot more nuance and discussion and visibility around sex worker rights um, as it pertains to labor rights than I think there has been um, since the time when the primary people being serviced by sex workers were in fact coal miners. You know, there were a lot of kind of, um, in early America, there were a lot of um, pretty autonomous um, bustling and legalized or decriminalized uh, sex work industries. But but since then, I would say since probably prohibition, um, you know, that's been the, the moral the insertion of morality onto that particular industry in the in its modern iteration. But so there's all this talk here in like the last five years. I mean, now we've got Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, like all these major media outlets covering sex work or, or you know, butting up against it like they did in the um, Democratic primary when they asked about that. Um, but on the other hand, you have a kind of reactive growing hysteria that links in with like the Save the Children movement and QAnon and and that falls into that kind of faith-based, puritanical, very American kind of narrative. And I'm wondering if you see that as well, that divergence. It's like there's less middle ground now. Completely, great, great observation. I do think it's definitely more schizophrenic now. and. I don't think I yet have a clear grasp of, I mean, it's very tempting. I think every generation feels like they're at the precipice of some new thing. And certainly I feel that way in our time, but also 
realizing that, you know, the QAnon lunacy <laughs> has a long and proud tradition of it dating back to like, you know, the white slavery panic, right? And the, and, 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 and you know, the fact that the reform era is really maybe also the beginning of like white upper class liberal feminist sort of appropriating prostitution as a way of like fighting back um, on their own agenda without like taking stock of the actual lives of sex workers. Like that's definitely a pattern that has continued, right? Like white savior complexes, um, you know, still re remains an issue. And so I, I don't know if I have like a clear grasp of, of where we are historically, but it does feel like, um, yeah, I don't know, like some, day, some days I feel like change will happen very, you know, very quickly. And then other times I feel like it's, it's going to be like another 50 years or something. And like, it's, it's hard for me to say. I mean, progress is something that you have to just, it's never over, right? It's just never over. You have to continue to um, kind of replace the foundations and the support beams of, of your movement in a way that, you know, uh, supports its continued existence, let alone expansion. And um, yeah, and obviously, you know, like you said, we can't see where we are in history because we're currently in it. Um, personally, I don't remember these conversations happening in a fractured or, or um, I dare say like bipartisan way. Like I remember moral panics. I remember satanic panic as a child of the nineties. I remember, you know, um, the white, slavery panic, but I, I don't ever remember there being a vocal and given pushback that's given the kind of visibility that the sex worker rights movement has been lately. And it's kind of the double-edged sword of social media, I think, that has allowed that. For sure, for sure. I mean, while you're talking, I was also thinking about how, you know, on one hand we have like, I, I realize obviously it's not the same thing, but marijuana being legalized in that industry is by some people within the sex work movement seen as like a sign that maybe, you know, sex work will also be, if not, if not legalized, certainly decriminalized. But then on the other hand, as you know, a lot of our friends and Colleagues have been sort of decimated by Backpage going down. And as, as you know, there's a lot of conversations around what's happening on the internet. And so then it's kind of, yeah, it sort of feels like it's kind of a net zero at the end in terms of things moving forward and, you know, falling backwards as well. It's like how I've started having like grapefruit for breakfast, but I'm eating lasagna every night anyway. You know, it's like yeah. this all. <laughs> exactly you start Correct. thinking you're eating healthy but really what's happening is you're just you're just making it up somewhere else yeah yeah, yeah. and i mean especially with section 230 kind of being on the chopping block right now um and i'm sure there will be unintended consequences from any if any of the antitrust legislation that's aimed at some of these tech giants has an outcome and gets 
somewhere, there will almost certainly be um, unintended positive and negative consequences for sex workers who use those platforms and really enjoy the um, ubiquity of them. Um, and we won't know. I mean, it's like, it's probably a net gain for society, but like having to manage and foresee those unintended consequences and then try to mitigate them um, is a real challenge. It's, it is, I think, the primary challenge of legislating well. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, the stuff you're doing with, with the gal that you're following. Sure. Um, I think you, you had her on, Katie, Gabriella. Yeah. Um, I got into touch with her because after the VF story ran, she wrote me a letter and I read it and then immediately called her mother, who um, what was reticent at first to put me in touch with her daughter, but eventually did. And since then, we've been in touch quite frequently, if not every, every day. Um, and what I was quite struck by, and listeners will know her story, so I'm not going to too much detail here, but what I was really struck by was that her case um, is a very dramatic case because she was trafficked into the live, as you know, and, you know, effectively ended up being prosecuted for trafficking another person herself. And she herself was quite young. And this highlights the flaws in the ways we think about, you know, what constitutes a victim and what constitutes a, um, a not, uh, I don't know, what's, what will be the opposite of a victim, um, perpetrator maybe. And so these labels, you know, they're, they're just words, but they carry immense weight in, in, in what kind of life you're going to have. And then in her case, crucially, um, she does her time and is released. But then as you know, she's on this crazy probation. She's on probation for 25 years. Um, during which time she can't use the internet. I mean, she, she can't, she's, there's a lot of limitations to her freedom. And then, then like that begs, you know, that sort of raises questions of if your goal is re-entry and you're barring people from using the internet, then how exactly are you, you know, allowed to live in the modern world? That's one question. Yeah, we're at a weird place with that. I and mean, it, it we're starting to very, very slowly wake up to the idea that the internet is a public good and should be treated as such. But then that of course raises questions about um, the way that um, carriers have monopolies on how they're providing that service to communities. And then yeah, with, with sex offenders specifically, it's a huge issue. Um, I have a family member who is a sex offender, um, a nonviolent sex offender who you know, fortunately had the resources to be like um, really well supported and their their reentry was pretty smooth. Um, but in trying to work for themselves, um, because getting a job as, as a felon is really difficult, can be really difficult depending on your skill set. Um, you know, he has to have somebody else running any kind of online promotions for his business. Right? He's trying to start his own business. He's doing okay. But you know, he can't walk in certain areas of town to put up flyers or he can't have um, a smartphone or whatever. And it's, it's like, you know, what is, I, th I think that the criminal legal system would be well served to 
ask in a very serious way, what is the desired outcome here? Exactly, exactly. No, that's exactly right. And proportionality too, like, okay, so she, uh, I'm using air quotes because these are loaded terms. She traffics a minor um, and then ends up doing time and then, you know, ends up with this like 25 year probation. What is, is that fair? Does that help anyone? I mean, the irony of the situation, as you may know, is that the girl that she nominally trafficked. I was just about to say that. <laughs> ended up going to prison for the exact same crime. And I just, so then you're just sort of wondering like, what was he arrested even for? Who, who are you serving? You've arrested this woman in the name of this other woman. And this other woman ends up, you know, going from victim to perpetrator quite quickly. And so clearly you haven't introduced any um, benefit to anyone's lives. And this is like, just this is our taxpayers dollars going towards these efforts. And it's alarming. And then of course, I think, a lot of questions around sex work, I think, also is questions around agency and free will, right? Like what constitutes free will? You ask people, why did you, you know, why did you enter sex work? And then they will say, I did it out of my own volition. And then you look at the life circumstance, you know, within their lives and you realize that, you know, maybe it wasn't an informed decision or maybe you didn't, you don't have that many options if you, your, you know, like if your outlook is limited or, or whatever. And so I think Kiki is struggling a lot with um, just that. Yes, I did certain things, but also dot, dot, dot. And again, I think the way that we prosecute people now, there is just not any room for that sort of nuanced um, review. Yeah, I tend to lean towards the why is, um, a personal question unless people want to proffer an answer to it on their own. Um, you know, I don't think that orgs need to be asking anybody that, <laughs> you know, and I don't think that the law needs to be asking anybody that either. Um, similarly, I don't think that anybody needs to know why a woman wants an abortion. I don't think it's any of your fucking business, but you know, we're, we're in, we're in uh, tragically thin company there. Um, and I mean, that ties back to, as you say, like capitalism and patriarchy, right? Like why was it so important to figure out like lineage and like police reproductive, you know, powers because under patriarchy and like capitalism, you have uh, property and, you know, inheritance and you need to make sure like which lineage is the proper lineage. And so anyone who fucks with that needs to like burn at the stake. And that's like witches and prostitutes and whatever. <laughs> right, the, the, the non-conforming female-bodied um, or female-perceived people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, do you, what has your personal evolution been like on, um, you know, some of those more complicated rights and wrong, rights and wrongs like the ones with Kiki who like, you know, I mean, technically she aided and abetted trafficking of a minor in reality, what she was doing was allowing a teenage runaway a place to stay without reporting her to authorities because she, you know, for whatever reasons, there's a lot of reasons we've talked, you know, we will talk with her about that. Um, 
but yeah, what's your own evolution been like as you've gotten deeper and deeper into this um, subject matter? I wonder if it's not really terribly important to legislate right and wrong because in many ways, in a lot of these cases, one never really knows. And I wonder if energy is better spent thinking about things like how do we, you know, allow people to re-enter society once they've been incarcerated. Why are they incarcerated in the first place? What purpose is that? They argue that it's to connect people to services. Well, then is there another better way of connecting people to services? They also argue that it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's actually quite unclear, you know, what, 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 the, um, what the purpose of these punishments are. But I do think it's worth interrogating at the root level. Yeah. What, what is the point of, you know, punishing people in these ways? And as you know, there are different theories of why people punish. It's, you know, to make sure that they don't do it again. Sometimes it's to, you know, there are all these other reasons. But if you look at the reasons of, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe if you are punished sufficiently, you won't do it again. But if you look at um, uh, rates at which people return to prostitution, it is, recidivism is very high. And it's because it's just not helpful once you've uh, become a convicted felon to go on like living in a world that hates felons. And so then maybe there's another way of helping people versus branding at, branding people as convicted felons. That's th those questions I think are worth asking. Yeah, if you follow the logic of, you know, the definition of insanity being, do, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, then just by definition, the way that we handle crimes of moral turpitude is insane. Absolutely. And again, I think it's important to look at, unpack the, you know, okay, so we don't, we're gonna, I don't know, um, even if you say, I have never thought about sex work and maybe I don't even have strong feelings, but again, if you interrogate the reasons why people participate, who go into it, it is usually because, you know, obviously, of course, this is a generalization. Lots of other people do it because they're, you know, they want to, and that's great too. But in my experience of people that I've met, it's usually because they are locked out of traditional labor markets or they you know, the, the minimum wage labor just simply wouldn't cut it. I, I mean, there are loads of sex workers who say, yes, I have tried to participate in the real world, the legal whatever world, above board world, and I can't, like, sex work really is the only thing that's going to allow me the flexibility of working and maybe going to school and raising my two kids on my own. And so then it's actually, it's the fact that people go into sex work is less of an indictment on their person, it's more of an indictment on our society that forces people to do it because they have no other option. Do you feel like the work that you're doing is um, making a difference there? How do you feel about um, your, your own work's relationship to the values that you hold? I mean, I feel so grateful to be able to do this work. I have, I feel like I really can't complain at all. And I don't know if it is wise to think about big questions of, are you making a difference? Because I think 
chances are you're not. Um, but I, I am maybe very, even one person at yeah. any given time. Yeah. But I do think that I have made a difference in the lives of my like subjects, like Kiki, for example, like she, I don't, I mean, this is just guesswork. So I maybe shouldn't speak out of, out of hand, but I wonder if my being in her life has given her some sense of legitimacy or, you know, like it's nice to have someone who's interested in you and wants to listen to what you have to say. That's a nice thing. And so maybe it's helped in that way. But also, even as I say that, I feel like it's a bit, it's sort of hubris for me to say it because in many ways, she has changed my life in more ways than one. And I think that is maybe a more honest way of being a reporter in the world, realizing that you're not this like objective bystander, but you're sort of in there with all the other mess and you're but one variable and you are being affected by what you witness and what you experience because if you're not, then something's probably very wrong with you. Would you say that allowing or enabling people to feel heard is an important part of journalism as a whole? I think people tend to think of the function of journalism as being about speaking, right? Or about bringing information forward. Mm -hmm. But it, it strikes me when you say, you know, um, when you speculate that, you know, maybe it feels good for her to feel heard. Yes. I think, I mean, the umbrage I take with journalism is that it is a utilitarian endeavor. You're basically saying, you Blair, you, I'm gonna talk to you. Um, and then you talking to me and me writing this article about you will help this like greater community. And usually it, chances are it's not gonna help you. But we, we tell you this lie that it's like for this greater good. And that's something that I, 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 I just, I'm sort of over. And so then I think now when I interact with people, I am pretty clear about how chances are nothing's gonna change for you. And I don't even know if it's gonna change anything for the greater community, but you know, some people find it cathartic to talk and it might be healing or liberating or whatever it is. Um, so you should think and decide if you want to talk to me. And I mean, this is obviously, it's been informed a lot of lot by recent discussions of like um, affirmative consent and all that. But I, I'm sort of horrified that I sort of came of age at a time when, and also I think it's especially worse in America because it's, journalism is so tied in with this idea of like the fourth estate, like, you know, American reporters are taught to be like defending democracy. And it just makes me laugh. It's just like most of us are just stenographers. And I think it's just better to admit that to ourselves than get carried away with this, some like grandiose notion of defending democracy or advancing human rights. Like probably you're not doing that. And I think it's okay, but I think if you're a good person first, and if you're a good person to your subjects, I think that is maybe a way in which you bring about change. Journalists do love to fancy themselves as having some kind of high-minded purpose. I mean, I guess we all have those existential 
kind of tie-ins to our work, especially Americans with work. Um, but, you know, th that is a really good guiding principle, I think, regardless of your profession is, is when you're interacting with people to be a person first and try to be a good person first. Um, there is a lot of very predatory journalism that surrounds sex works, uh, especially as it gets to be bigger and bigger. And, and sometimes those lines can be really tough to discern. I think about this a lot with regard to like the podcast. I'm like, you know, am I being a journalist in the purest sense when I'm reporting on this for this show because I'm literally, I'm paid by an organization that has, you know, obviously there's a conflict of interest there. And is this journalism? Is it something else? You know, um, I don't have concerns about being predatory um, the same way. I mean, I do try to keep that top of mind, but the same way that maybe somebody from a, an outside organization or publication might. I just, I think there needs to be a, a frank reckoning about the fact that most of what reporters do, you know, is kind of morally reprehensible. We are, it is a very extractive endeavor and maybe just admitting that and acknowledging that fact is important unto itself versus this other thing we have where it's like, you know, you should be grateful that I'm talking to you and, you know, I, this is going to help the community. Like, I just, if it, I think sort of untethering oneself from that narrative on itself is maybe helpful. And I do think that, um, like, I think people have every right to be mad at reporters and, but also, I, I've also been often quite surprised by how little people know about how reporters operate. And I think, I mean, there just hasn't been a lot of public, you know, there hasn't been like proper PSAs about what constitutes journalism, but, you know, you can ask people to speak off the record, which means like nothing you use. I, I'm talking from, you know, if you're, a, if you're a potential source, you can ask, you know, can we speak off the record if you don't feel comfortable? Like there are ways of um, keeping control if you don't feel uh, good about the, you know, exchange. And, and I think, so much of it is trust, right? Like, do you trust the person you're talking to if you're a source? And then if you're a reporter, am I believing what this other person is saying? And it is inherently a messy thing that we're trying to do. And maybe, yeah, just being honest about the fact that it's not perfect and it's kind of dubious is a good place to start. They are inherently using and profiting off of your yeah, narrative, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's just the nature of things, yeah. Um, actually, could you expand a little bit on that? Like, what would you want people to know about, you know, as subjects interacting with the press? Like, what do you wish people knew or what do you think they should understand? I think sort of rules about around journalism is also has been evolving. And so, for example, and I think I, I always go back to maybe the most important thing is thinking about power, like who has power in this dynamic. And so if I am, I don't know, interviewing, yeah, sure, a sex worker, and maybe they are, you know, come, they come from a marginalized community and maybe the English isn't their first language, they're compromised in some way, and they talk to me, 
and then they say, actually, just kidding, I changed my mind. I don't want to be part of this story. Then obviously, like, we will, I will honor that. And I think most reporters who are good will honor that too. But if I'm talking to some like elected official who's like maybe a venal politician and afterwards, you know, his secretary emails me and says, actually, like, all that was off the record, like, that's on you. And so and yeah, they I, should, they should know better. <laughs> Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's just thinking about who has the power, you know, is this person like an informed, is this person giving informed consent? Like, And I think that's part of the reason why maybe journalism is so complicated because there isn't like a, um, there isn't like a secretariat or something that all reporters can go to, to say, you know, this is, this is, this ambiguous case, can someone resolve it for me? It's all sort of touch and go in case by case and yeah, and it's institution, you know, an organization dependent too. I mean, oh God, what was it? The Post that ran that story that that outed the uh, um, the EMT in New York oh, who had an OnlyFans. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Post. So, like, you know, you would not and could not and would face repercussions for doing something like that at Vanity Fair. You will not at the Post. That guy's gonna work there till he retires. Yeah, right. So yeah, perhaps understanding a little bit about the publication and the person is, yeah, you're right. The ethics around dealing with subjects at the New York Post will most likely be very different from how people do things at the New York Times versus Vanity Fair versus, I don't know, Bon Appetit, Appetit or something. And so just be, be, maybe becoming a little bit more, yeah, media literate. Although I, as I say that, I'm just like, well, why should people know that? I don't know. Um, but it's tough. Maybe- it feels it feels a little bit like being like, you know, make, you know, cover your drink when you go to the bathroom or whatever. You're like, why is yeah. this? Why, yeah. Why do I have to cover my drink? Just don't roofie me. <laughs> no, for sure. And but okay so maybe then it goes back to like you should just trust your gut instincts if you connect with a reporter talk to that person but if not then don't today's episode was produced by me blair hopkins and brought to you in part by swap behind bars music by new orleans's own johnny sketch and the dirty notes check them out at johnnysketch.com special thanks as always to alex andrews to contribute to the good work she's doing with swap behind bars visit swapbehindbars.org and remember all in a day's sex work is an ever-expanding narrative if you are a sex worker partner patron or other adult industry adjacent person i want to hear from you Email me at info at adswproject.org.